Hey guys, this is Emmett. I'm here with your latest installment of Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I'm very excited. We've got another historical, technical deep dive for you guys, and we have a guest to steward us along that journey, and that guest is Edgardo Sepulveda. Thank you for taking time out of your day to come talk to us. Oh, thanks, Emmett. Happy to happy to join you. I've been a, a longtime fan of the show, so it's uh, great that we're being able to do this show. Absolutely. Thank you so much. So before we get started, I thought you might be able to introduce yourself to our guests. And why don't you tell us a little bit about your background, which will probably tell us tell them a little bit about what we're going to talk about today. Sure, sure. Happy to do that. So my name is Edgardo Sepulveda. So I'm uh, I'm uh, uh, an economist by training. I've 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 been doing uh, independent consulting for about 15 years, and my background is in network economics and and regulatory matters, focusing on the telecom sector. But over the last uh, five six years, I've taken a real keen interest in in the electricity sector. Uh, deep dives, historical, uh, economical, um, regulatory. Um, and so um, I've done a bunch of writing on it, publications, uh, a couple of podcasts, and I'm happy to be on, on this podcast. Awesome. Well, that's perfect. And for anybody who wants to find you on Twitter or anything like that, all of those links, guys, will be in the show notes as usual. So go ahead there, go follow Edgardo. He is excellent. So today we are going to talk about how we got to a point where the American grid has become so re-regulated and so fragile. And part of that is a long story about integration, American fears of monopoly, the loaded term neoliberalization, and problems with elite interference in politics, I would say. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, those are, those are excellent points. And, and sort of from my perspective, one of the things that I look at being based in, in Toronto, Canada, uh, having, you know, um, uh, being born, being an, an immigrant to Canada and kind of looking at what happened in my home country of Chile, I've always been interested in these sort of these long-term trends of decisions taken 20, 30 years ago impacting us now. And and to some extent, Emmett, kind of constraining what is feasible now um, mm. and, and kind of gets to some of your points that, that I enjoy in your podcast as if, you know, it, nothing feels, certain things just don't feel feasible anymore. And there's a history to that. The decisions taken, people, you know, there's path dependence uh, associated with some of these decisions. And totally. so that's one of the things that I've always kind of been interested in looking at. And I've had the kind of luxury of being able to do that as sort of an outsider kind of student uh, analyst looking at the electricity sector with no real kind of commercial interest. I mean, I, that, that would be a different situation if I was looking at the telecoms industry. You know, that's that's what I do my consulting, but and this has been a, a pure kind of personal thing. So the, the kinds of things that I'm interested in in talking to you about, Emmett, is kind of from a, a very US-centric perspective, but also keeping an eye out that there are a lot of comparators where the United States is is sort of in the mainstream and where there are outliers on, on some of these issues about public control or public provision, regulation versus liberalization, kind of integration of the grid versus this unbundling or disintegration. So what I thought I would do, I'm not going to take you back to Edison and Pearl Street in 1881, but where I wanted to start was, you know, in the 1920s, where in the United States and elsewhere around the world, we're seeing this huge increase in the growth of not only the economy, but also of electricity generation and what was happening in the United States. And and what we see is that out of sort of the 1880s and the initial provision of basically just, you know, street lighting and tramways and trolleys and that kind of stuff, what we see is this, this huge explosion of entrepreneurship where people are setting up poles and doing generation stations and you're seeing growth rates in the sector of 
12-15% year over year. And so you're, you're literally doubling the size of generation capacity and electricity generated every six, seven years, right? Just phenomenal growth. Wow, that's, that's incredible. Basically, yeah, that's basically, and that's just extension. I mean, this is, remember, I mean, you know, at one point, uh, there's no one, you know, there's no electricity in any homes or, or industry. And then suddenly, you know, you get from 10% household penetration in, in the, say, at 19, in 1900, to, you know, 50, 60% in 1920s. And then, so you're going to get this huge extensive frontier where everyone is growing very, very quickly. And people are buying refrigerators, right? I mean, it's totally, the first thing you do, totally. right? You have a light, you put, you have light on in your house. So, so you get. I mean, it's huge... hard to believe. It's hard to imagine what it's like before you have that sense we're already developed now. But right. I advise anybody, you can go and we might touch on this briefly, but you can actually find like oral histories of accounts of people's response to things like the TVA later down the line and what it was like to be able to keep the lights on after dark for the first time in their lives. Like people who had grown to be 50, 60 years old and now they get to turn their lights on. It's astounding how life-changing and how almost miraculous it felt to them. Oh yeah, for sure. And it, it did everything. I mean, you know, think about just a simple like a refrigerator, right? You know, <laughs> the health implications of a refrigerator Right. Yeah. You don't have right. to get a huge block of ice, you know, every couple of days, haul it home and then like put it in its own separate room and its own separate box and then like cross that's, your fingers, you know, that's right. That's right. Anyway. So what you see here is mostly in the United States and most like, like in most of the developing world, the developed world is that this is done. This is done mostly by the private sector, right? It, these are entrepreneurs who are going in there, and you know you get these weird situations where in the in the sort of in the central business district in the you know in the downtown you have sometimes you have two or three or four sets of entrepreneurs basically competing for the same customers, right? And so you have these multiple multiple sets of distribution companies who are competing. And then as per usual, it starts to go out. It starts to go out from the city and then into sort of the, the, the residential areas, et cetera. But what you, get, uh, uh, what you get in the United States and not so much in other countries during the 1920s is, is this huge merger and acquisition process. These are the roaring 20s, right? This is yeah. the, huge, the huge boon in financialization Right. If we mm -hmm. talk about financialization, you know, this was bigger, <laughs> right? This is yeah. this is this is basically when you know the Robert Barons, the the Duponts, the the Morgans, you know, the Rockefellers, they start to create their trusts and their holding companies, right? And so you know, you get you get companies the size of which don't exist in the United States anymore and haven't existed for a long time. For example. The J.P. Morgan holding company, I can't remember what it, exactly it was called, was constituted 7% of American GDP in 1929, right? Like 7%. I mean, that's huge. Uh, that's not... That's amazing. That's, that's bigger were, than Walmart. These were huge vertically integrated firms too. So like I that's think right. at one point at the peak of, you know, this is maybe a little bit later, but the peak of River Rouge mm. for the Ford plant, they were even figuring out how to integrate rubber from Brazil right. into the first, like it was like from source to coming right off the line. They yep. wanted almost everything. Very little was contracted out. That's right. That's right. And so, and what you get is you get these, what sort of technically what economists refer to as, they're not quite conglomerates, but they're they're called uh, they're based on kind of like they they describe a pyramid, so the pyramidal uh, firms where you have basically mm. an apex an apex firm, right, controlled by Mr. Morgan, <laughs> right, or Mr. Rockefeller, right, right? yeah, yeah, <laughs> and so this apex firm then kind of controls fifty one percent of a subsidiary, or two or three or four subsidiaries. And then each one of those controls 51% of the, 
of a bunch of other subsidiaries and so forth and so forth and so forth, right? So those kinds of firms don't exist in the United States. They do exist in other countries right now. For example, a Samsung in Korea, right? A Samsung is in everywhere, right? So is a Hyundai, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah. And, and the same case, you know, occurs in Japan, in Chile, in my home country, you know, the Wallenberg family in in Sweden right now probably controls about 15, 10, 10, 15% of Swedish GDP, right? So these firms do exist in other countries, but they were basically eliminated in the United States as a result of the reformers that we're about to talk about. And so, so 1929 hits, the great crash. At that point, what you have is about 15 holding companies after a huge merger and acquisition uh, craze controlling about 90% of electricity utilities in the United States. That's right. an, an exceptional level of dominance. Right. Exactly. And they're mostly they're mostly, you know, these are these pyramidal firms, usually 50-60 affiliates each one. You know, levels of pyramid maybe 5, 6, 7 levels, right? You know, so you have the Apex firm. They're not always family controlled. They're sometimes kind of loosely controlled, right? Generally controlled. But it's a basically a way to, you know, for industries to integrate themselves. One of the reasons that economists are thinking of why they did this is that if you remember the Sherman Act, the Antitrust Act of 1890, was established during that earlier merger mania phase. And part of that was, you know, if there was, in response to which series of states start to establish public service commissions to be able to regulate, whether it's water or electricity or natural gas. First one of which was, I think, New York, uh, the Public Service Commission in 1907. Uh, by the 1920s, you have most states of the union having public service commissions. But the problem was is that these public service commissions weren't able to regulate these holding companies, right? Because they were interstate. And mm. so that's one of the reasons they set themselves up. So in the context of the New Deal, one of the things that, that Roosevelt does is that with, 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 uh, with Congress, they pass what's called, I just want to make sure I get the name of it. It's called the Public, the public Utilities Holding Companies Act. PUCA. And what this thing does is that it says, you know, we're going to, you know, the state is going to push back against these robber barons who are in the electricity sector, and we're going to start to break it up, right? They, they give federal authority to the SEC, and they say to the SEC, look, you know, you have to have uh, only two levels of the pyramid, you have to do. You have to be connected by infrastructure rather than by finance. Uh, you can only own electricity or gas. You can't own both. So suddenly, what happens is by the end of the Second World War, the electricity sector has been transformed uh, to one which resembles very much what it is now, which is maybe 150 to 200 investor-owned utilities, independent unaffiliated with these any of these holding firms and you know at and then you know you have you start to have some of the the public ownership you know, you know with the uh, the Tennessee Valley Authority being established again by Roosevelt in the 30s uh, and Bonneville I think around the same time and so you have by the end of the 19 yeah, again by the end of the second world war the structure of the United, you know, in the United States electricity sector, more or less the same way it is now. You know, we tend to oversimplify. Well, there was such great chaos in the '30s, and the New Deal. It's not like Roosevelt comes into office being like, "I'm going to do this." He doesn't even come up with the idea of the New Deal. A reporter does and says the phrase "New Deal," and he's like, "Okay, I guess I'm doing that." <laughs> and. A lot of this had to do with getting different people to sit at the table and not all of these factions of capital or labor were on each other's sides, right? So you have these larger pyramidal firms and then you have smaller entrepreneurs and then you have sort of a fractured labor movement 
that has different antagonisms between like artisans and like closer to mass produced guys, right? The AFL-CIO is not together. And I'm saying all this to say that a lot of these things are brokered between all of these contending groups over the course of the New Deal and then between the federal government and the states based on what's basically going to pass. There's huge resistance all around because the whole world is in economic freefall. And in the United States, we have often had an uneasy relationship with bigness and with nationalization. So that's a factor in there too. And that I think sets a backdrop and some sort of ideological priors for part of what you're saying, if I'm hearing you correctly. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I I think this wasn't easy. I mean, the Public Utilities Holding Companies Act which was passed, I think, in 35, 36, was appealed all the way to the Supreme Court. I mean, you know, these pyramidal groups, they didn't, you know, they weren't going to let this pass easily, right? So it it really doesn't get, it doesn't really get uh, implemented fully by the, the Securities and Exchange Commission until like 1939 and 1940. So it's, it's really, it's dead law for about four years as it goes through the appeal process. Um, mm-hmm. So, so, so capital was, capital was pushing back, right? Uh, and it pushed back hard. And who knows what would happen had the Second World War not occurred, and whether totally. they would have continued to have done so, right? But you know, but the other thing was is that it was very, very focused. I mean, people considered electricity. And, you know, once they had electricity, they weren't going back. Right, so this was seen as an essential sector. Yeah, you can't get people to go back. People will not go back. I think no, that's something won't. that people are like very naive about. <laughs> it's like you can't force them to like they will literally get out the pitchforks and torches <laughs> before they let you do that to them because that's their livelihood. Yeah. That is them taking care of the kids and they get home from work. Well, that that's is exa- them putting yeah. food on their table you know, for them and their loved ones. That is them going to church. That is them going shopping. That is yeah. them going to the library. You yeah, know? yeah. And so so there's that. Um, and I think, you know, you know, one of the places we want to end up here is, is Indian Point, Emmett. But one mm-hmm. of the interesting things that happens is, you know, when, when before he becomes president, Roosevelt was, was, you know, governor of New York. And it was in 1931 there, as governor of New York, that he established the New York Power Authority, right? Which is going to have a, a role in our story <laughs> yeah, <laughs> at yeah. the end of our episode, right? Yeah. And so the New York Power Authority is just what it sounds like. It is one of the first, if not the first large scale public power, publicly owned, public provision, uh, what we generally call in the economics field, a, a, a state owned enterprise that Roosevelt does on a state level two or three years before he establishes the Tennessee Valley Authority at the federal level in 1933-94, right? So so already at the state level, uh, and it wasn't just him, I think, I don't remember when the, uh, the LA Department of Water and Power was established, uh, but I think he might have been around the same time. So there's a series mm. of, at this point, in this kind of political ferment, you're having not only this breaking up of these large trusts, these large holding companies, which were basically avoiding regulation by having this holding company uh, structure, even though there was a state-level regulation, but you're also having the first inklings of public provision where you start thinking about, yes, we could rely on investors to do this, but we could also do it uh, on a state level. And so, yeah, you get the New York Power Authority, and then ultimately you have TVA. Uh, and so you're having to, you're seeing this, and you're having the co-ops, right? The rural co-ops that were the mechanism via which uh, rural electrification occurred. So already you're having this situation of a mixed economy, mixed provision, some private, some public, and some cooperative. Okay. So what starts to happen as we move into the post-war era? Does this story stay the same, or do we see some noticeable changes? 
I think what you see is, first of all, you know, with with these court cases done, you start to see the what was now kind of the traditional uh, structure that that held for about 30, 40 years, which is sort of unaffiliated, state-based, private, uh, integrated utilities, integrated in terms of that they owned the generation, they owned the the transmission and distribution. There were all those three uh, elements uh, of the sector were were, uh, regulated by, you know, any one of the 50 public utility commissions established at the state level, and you have uh, continued growth. Uh, you know, if, if, if electricity generation was growing at, was doubling every, you know, six, seven years, uh, you know, in the early 20th century, you know, during the Second World War, it was huge. But, you know, say from 1945, you know, to the, the kind of oil crisis in, of the early 70s, you have pretty solid, you know, seven, eight, nine percent growth year over year, right? So you're still basically doubling, you know, the electricity sector, the size of the generation in, you know, every ten years, right? It's still phenomenal growth. That's incredible. Um, so it's so it's sort of on trend with a general like Pax Americana. That's right. Ramp that's up right. of growth that yeah um, yeah. People yeah. are still nostalgic for. Yeah, that's exactly it, right? But here's one of the first times that you kind of get a break from what is happening in the rest of the world. So it's after Second World War and, you know, this huge government effort in the industrialized countries that were, you have a political change in much of the rest of the world, whereby certain industries are seen as, you know, fundamental to the development of the economy. And you get very large uh, nationalizations, right? And so, for example, you know, EDF in France, uh, you know, the national uh, electricity company uh, only exists from 1946, uh, right? So France, again, there was a lot of destruction in, in, you know, in continental Europe, but France basically decides uh, as a national project to nationalize and consolidate into one company, EDF, the 200 or 300 smaller companies that made up, and there were private companies that made up the grid in France during historical Mm -hmm. times, right? Like during Second World War and prior. It's the same case in the UK. In the UK, there's this uh, nationalization of uh, these private companies that, that were all consolidated into one which is sort of the precursor of what's called the Central uh, Electricity Generation Board. And you see that around the world. You see that, you know, that after the Second World War, you have this consolidation and nationalization. And and that's sort of the first break of where the United States is different from the other countries in terms of that there's not, if there's not a political will, maybe there's not the idea that we need to change the way we've done things now that we're in this new era after the Second World War. Right. I mean, I think that that's one of the things we've talked a lot about on the show is that reconsidering things when you're winning as hard as the United States felt like it was after World War II, it was like probably just not going to happen. You know, it doesn't seem like everything is going so well, there aren't necessarily tons of opportunities to be like, hey, wait a second. Why is everyone doing things differently from us or what have you? We were pretty self-contented in that era Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, down mm -hmm. to our our, like priors for how our country should be run. You know, the American way really gets solidified between the New Deal and right before the civil rights movement. Right. And that's not just a cultural belief, but that also becomes political and economic ethos about just the way things are done. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, exactly, Emmett. It's, it's not that a victorious country that recognizes itself as a world leader, you know, there's not the incentive there to kind of change the way things are. Exactly. Uh, there were other countries that said, ah, we've got to change things or, you know, we've got to build on the ruins, right? I mean, think of think of what happened in Germany. Think of what happened in France, right? I mean, totally. Or the Soviet reindustrialization after being that's right, that's right, nearly that's right. totally destroyed by World War II. 
Yeah, yeah. And one of the reasons I raise this, Emmett, is because, you know, with these all these countries nationalizing, and this is certainly the case in 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 Canada as well, right? I mean, it's you know Hydro Quebec, Ontario Hydro, you know these vertically integrated state-owned enterprises uh, that basically cover the entire serving territory of the province also you know if not begin certainly get consolidated as a result of this and so it's one of those things that many of these countries went through this state-owned enterprise process of public provision many of them as we'll get to you know would have privatized you know in the neoliberal era of the 1980s 1990s but they went through this process right like it's not alien to them you know in living history most countries have had the two systems and some combination of that and i think that's one of the distinctive aspects of the United States is that you haven't. You've had this great deal of stability, mm-hmm. basically, you know, since 1932, right? Like, like in terms of the sector, you know, it's it's about 70% private, mm-hmm. uh, 15% public, and about 15% co-op. And it's been like that, more or less, for about 60 years in the United States, right? And so it's just been done that way. You Sure, you know, you no longer have these holding companies, the JP Morgans of the world, the, right, right. you know, the General Electrics, but ultimately in terms of ownership, you know, it's been a very stable company, which is one of the uh, country, which is one of the reasons that it kind of feels like it's been like this forever, that it's an amber, right? Mm-hmm. Right, yeah. exactly. I mean, I think that the way that that gets treated on the left is if it's as if there was capacity, understanding, institutional knowledge that gets handed down in other countries that allows for nationalization projects, but that there's no such handing down in the United States. I think that that's false. I think the more appropriate way to think about it is that we were handed down traditions and institutions and stuff like that, but they're structured the way they are now. It was a more laissez-faire approach. That's Mm -hmm. what we know. It's baked into the design. It's a huge part of our culture. And to act as if we were not doing something rather than doing something is to fail to understand the conditions under which we now live. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. And so then what you get, yeah, and then what you get the sort of, you know, this Pax America, as you refer to in France, they call the glorious 30, right, in terms of the years of un, un, uh, unconstrained growth, yeah, um, yeah. you know, uh, from, you know, from, you know, after the Second World War to basically from an energy perspective, the, you know, the, the Arab uh, oil embargo and, and the energy crisis of the early 70s. Um, then you get this influential ideology of, of neoliberalism, whereby people are not only rethinking state ownership, public ownership, uh, where it exists, um, but also the idea of monopoly. Because, I mean, the quid pro quo here of these companies, of the, the sort of regulatory construct, was that uh, we're going to give you, um, the state will give you um, essentially a geographic franchise monopoly where you're supposed to provide universal service that is to everyone who wants it, not just to the rich inner core, but also to the outlying areas. Um, uh, but you're not going to face competition. But what we will do is we are going to control your prices, right? So right. that's the regulatory well. And what you do that, and then we're not only going to control your prices, but we're going to guarantee, and the the way that we control your prices is by guaranteeing um, your rate of return on what is called the asset base, which is the amount of capital invested in the system, right? And so this is this is something else that the United States is a pioneer in, because in other countries you don't have to have this kind of regulation because it's all done internally within the government and the ministries and the state-owned enterprises, right? So you don't have to have that idea of, oh, I'm going to guarantee, you know, Con Ed's rate of return or, P, you know, PC&G, whatever, Florida Light, uh, because it's done, it's, done in, it's done internally as part of a, actually a ministry or a department or as a, as a state-owned enterprise. 
And so there's no need really to establish these, these regulatory entities and mechanisms, but in the United States there is, right? Because you mm -hmm. can't allow a monopoly just to charge whatever it wants because that's really economics 101. Um, right, so you, right. you have these things, but also at the same time, you have to make sure that, um, that you reduce the risk of, of, uh, of, of, the, uh, of the investment. And so that's what this rate of return regulation is, where it basically says, look, um, if you invest, uh, you know, $100 um, and we're going to, and we accept it as kind of like prudently incurred that you didn't kind of like overinvest, you know, we're going to guarantee over the life of that uh, a reasonable return. So, for example, you know, when AT&T starts to lay down copper, now copper in terms of our of our telecoms infrastructure, the life of a copper loop is anywhere between 50 and 100 years, right? So, so no capitalist would ever invest in a, you know, in that yeah. kind of asset. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Whereby you, they're not going to they're not going to have a return on it over fifty or hundred years, unless there was a regulatory compact, whereby the state, uh, as a result of all of these you know these legal precedents, is going to guarantee that you uh, actually get a return, right? And so one of the important things about these, uh, at least in a private sector perspective, uh, that gets developed, you know, over from 1945 to 1975, is the idea of patient capital and patient and patient institution. Right. Long, right? long, long time horizons. And so long term horizons. I just want to sort of fill in some, a little bit of background as I did when we were in the twenties and thirties here about why something like this might become compelling, right? Because people don't do this for no reason. Things persuade them and other things stop working. So the panic over stagflation that happens in the 70s, essentially what we generally refer to as the breakdown of the Keynesian economy, which was often about these long time horizons and things like that, because America already has a sort of like laissez-faire intellectual, political and economic path dependency it makes sense that it reaches for ideas that were already in the wings about what a new laissez-faire world might look like. At the same time, the United States is starting to deindustrialize. So there seems less concern for having these long lasting, big firms that actually make things uh, as part of your consideration for what's going to be important. And that's going to change our relationship with pa patient capital as you say yeah yeah and so you know it, oh, and the energy crisis we should probably and the energy crisis and the energy crisis there. well that's exactly it right so so in the same way that you know an AT&T or you know uh, would not unless they had a legal certainty that they were going to be able to recoup their investment you know this applies to the electricity sector and specifically to nuclear Right, you know, it, when nuclear, you know, the atoms for peace and all that, all that process in the 1950s, which you've covered very well in the past, when you have, you know, a life of a reactor for, I guess that they were initially licensed what for 30 years, 40 years, but mm -hmm. you know, people were expecting to have lasted longer. Again, no capitalist is going to invest in a, in a in that kind of asset that where they're going to have you know millions of dollars or billions of dollars of upfront investment um unless they had they were de-risked by institutional regulatory in, uh, uh, mechanisms where they were going to be guaranteed a steady stream of revenues to be able to recover their investment and those oh, really? were 30 40 50 year investments and so that's what these these regulatory institutions did they de-risked long-term patient capital so that it would actually occur in the context of a private sector uh driven sec you know uh e economy right uh, and then you get the yeah and then you get the you get the energy crisis you get um 
you know, Keynesianism being taken over by monetarism and, and neoliberalism. You get the, you know, the reforms of the telecom sector. You get deregulation of the airlines. And then, and then it's, it's uh, energy's time, right? And so, you know, you get the breakup and privatization in, of, of in the UK, um, you know, that happens in the 1990s. Um, and then you get a series of, of you know, legislative changes um, in the United States. So that, you know, starting in 1996 with, um, with California and New York, um, you know, until about 2001, 2002, you get about half of the states liberalizing, which meant uh, introduction of competition, you know, breaking up of these uh, vertically integrated utilities uh, in order to promote competition in the generation. Mm-hmm. And so that Which was thought that it was going to drive cost down for rate payers, right? Because it wasn't the thing where these integrated firms would be like, okay, we're going to almost overbuild the, the grid because we know we're going to get, we can just pass that cost down. And right. people were like, well, I don't really like that. And so yep. they were like, okay, let's break these up so that the generators then auction in an auction house. That's right. Or who does it? And that, that type of competition will drive prices down for the people at home. That's it. That's it. So the idea that competition in a in in a in, in a specific segment of the sector creates uh, efficiencies. Uh, it allows you know market forces to do their thing. And so the expectation was is that there were going to be significant price decreases. As a result of this, uh, of this, of this uh, restructuring, and it's not as if you know of the fifth of the you know twenty you know it depends on how you count them seventeen twenty twenty one states that did it. What we get is a natural experiment, right? You have some of the some of the states that did it, and most of the states did not, right? And so what you see is states that were generally bigger, um, that had higher prices going in. Uh, where manufacturing was more important, and therefore you get a pressure group to actually, um, um, you know, uh, to restructure. Yeah. They want those uh, low costs. Right? That's right. They want those low costs. And then, you know, you get some in- interesting institutional aspects, you know, whereby the bigger the legislature, the more sophisticated was, uh, or the Public Utility Commission was more sophisticated. Uh, you know, these are some of the kind of factors that economists have looked at in terms of, well, how do we make sense of who did this and who didn't, right? right. And so those are some of the sectors because it's a, it's a pretty, you know, interesting natural experiment. Let me take you back just a little bit here in terms okay. of the time scale to get us set up for, for Indian Point. So in the context of this um, energy crisis of the early 70s, um, what, what you get is um, uh, the New York Power Authority that had been chugging along for like, you know, 60 years since Roosevelt set it up in 1931. I think it was under Rockefeller, right? The, the governor Rockefeller who says, look, uh, we, have this, uh, we have this energy crisis. <laughs> um, and so, you know, set up a commission and it says, look, uh, you know, we need more power. We need more power for New York. Um, and we need more power for the subway in New York and, and all the institutions via which we are, um, we are uh, you know, we use the generation comes out of the New York Power Authority. Again, New York Power Authority does not have distribution, right? So they don't, they're not the ones who do the last mile to your home. Right. What they do is they do generation. It's kind of like the TVA. The TVA doesn't do distribution. They just do the generation component. Mm-hmm. Uh, they get the co-ops to do the, the the distribution. And so what he says is, you know what? We're going to get into nuclear. And TVA by that point had already had or had plans or had actually done nuclear. And so what they do is they get, I think it was Westinghouse, to build one of the two, I think, nuclear reactors up at Oswego on Lake Ontario, right? Fitzpatrick. Yeah. Right? So that is a New York Power Authority initiated process. And then in the 1972, 74, 
uh, I think it's Rockefeller's successor, uh, again, a, a Republican, who says, now at this point, Con Ed, who had been building Indian Point 1 and 2, was having financial trouble as a result of the energy crisis. And so he, uh, Rockefeller, his successor, gets the legislature to agree to take over the end, the, the finalization of the construction of Indian Point 3. And so when Indian Point 3 starts to get operational in 1975-76, it is a public company. It is a public asset. And so by 1976, you have the New York Power Authority owning a bunch of hydro assets for generation and two nuclear power plants, Fitzpatrick and, and Indian Point 3. Yeah, and this is also when, um, per William Tucker... This is also in the time of Storm King pump storage and stuff like that. So this is That's also right. the birth of the environmental movement, which was categorically against all of this. And labor was, by and large, for it. That's right. It was a political battle. I mean, I, I, yeah. I'm, I'm giving you the highlights, but this is actually what happened. And yeah, I mean, there were plans. The New York Power Authority had plans for even more nuclear reactors, and then there was pushback. But they were they were able to actually build and finance and I guess they were be able to issue bonds to be able to do this to nuclear reactors. And they were, they were running them. Amazing. Beautiful. Right? And so, you know, here's a... Here's so a, break my heart. What happens? <laughs> well, this is the counterfactual of that there is no public power and that things can't change. Right? Here's the situation as a result of, a, of an energy crisis pushed by a, a, a Republican a governor who says I'm going to build I'm going to build two you know nuclear power reactors and the state's going to step in and the state steps in to take over one a struggling a struggling con ed in in point 3 and from scratch in Fitzpatrick and so you know so 1996 New York is one of the first ones to liberalize to start to break it up now again this isn't applied to New York power authority right because the new york power authority like tva like the la department of water and power are not regulated they're not subject to the regulation of you know uh, of the of the california puc or the new york mm. you know public state commission they're outside of the regulation because they're treated differently right they're a different they're category. So, different categories they're not for profit they're state owned which is a little different i mean that's what uh, that is a an institutional aspect of this legacy in the United States, whereby there's very little bit, very little commingling of competition in the market amongst private and public. The public is very much outside, looking at providing specific areas. So the New York Power Authority is not necessarily generating power for consumers. For Joe and Blow, and you know, in, in upstate New York or whatever, they're mostly providing power for state needs. Like, for example, you know, the 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 subway in in New York, right? Public the school public system. School, yeah. The public school systems, a whole bunch of things. So they're not necessarily selling it to you and me the same way that, you know, Ontario Hydro or EDF in France is providing to the actual end consumer, to the public right. in general. Right. Okay. So that's a little bit of a distinction, right? So that's always been part of the arrangement of the political economy whereby you're not necessarily so the tva for example doesn't provide directly to you know to public distribution companies you know it has a preferential rate for co-ops right and for municipal municipal distribution companies so there's a kind of bit of a segregation of private and the public shall not compete head to head but regardless, here we are in the New York Power Authority doing this. But what happens is, and I think it was, I'm trying to remember who the governor was at the time of the legislature. Anyway, 1996 occurs, the sector is, is, is liberalized, and New York wants more money. And so they privatize. They privatize Fitzpatrick and in Point 3. And they sell them to Entergy, mm. right, for a billion dollars. That's huge, right? That's a big transfer. That's a big transfer. At that point, it had been the New York State's largest privatization in history. It was the first time that a uh, that nuclear assets 
were privatized in the United States, and it might have been actually the first time in in anywhere in the world where you know normally a a public nuclear uh, that started as public was privatized to the um, to the private sector. Uh, And so, yeah, yeah. So that's, that's, you know, so that's energy. And, you know, so I think this is a good segue to talk, start talking about Indian Point, but just sort of to kind of close the loop on this whole liberalization process. uh, Surprise, surprise, Emmett. um, You know, the promises of, of lower prices for consumers that would result from restructuring did not occur. (laughs) <laughs> right. Yeah. Uh, right. Yeah. I mean, you know, the 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 phenomenal efficiency gains and you know the promise of competition, um, of setting up all of these RTOs and ISOs. Ultimately, there's now pretty strong evidence looking at it from a comparative perspective that prices compared to the traditionally organized states are no lower than they would have otherwise have been and in many instances are higher. So, so, you know, there's, you know, we can think about whether, you know, there's going to be learning that occurs when people say, ah, we tried this experiment um, and it didn't pan out. It's not that it was sort of the end of the world, right? but, but, but you don't have the promise of, of, um, you know, uh, fulfilled of lower prices. And then you get the other issue, which is that um, once you start to liberalize and you um, take away this rate of return regulation um, that provided a de-risking of patient capital, what you get is that you don't get any more nuclear uh, built mm-hmm. during that whole process. Yeah, it doesn't benefit from the things that a liberalized market um, advantages. That's right? right. Like part of it's going to be novelty, yep. right? So coming up with innovations, that's not what drives costs down in nuclear. It's a very complex, prolonged engineering process, which is why like Vogel in uh, Georgia right now has cost overruns and stuff like that. They're very difficult engineering processes and what drives cost down is getting good at doing the same thing over and over again. That's right. Economies of replication. And so what you see is that, and, um, and, and then in these wholesale markets, in these liberalized wholesale markets, you know, these nuclear uh, plants that are basically unaffiliated with, you know, that were previously affiliated with a vertically integrated company, and then they were required to be sold off and are basically now on their own as a merchant as a as a merchant plant you know have difficulty uh recovering their 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 costs in the context of a liberalized wholesale market where together with the you know the fracking revolution and subsidized uh entry of um, renewables mm-hmm. are closing down. So it's not a surprise that every single closure of a nuclear plant has been in a liberalized restructured market and they've all been private. So right, right. what you don't have is you don't have like out of the seven or eight that have closed in the last 10 or 12 years, they've all been in liberalized markets and they've all been private enterprise. So, you know, you don't have TVA, for example, closing any of its nuclear plants because it's a public company and it's not subject to markets. And you don't have any, you know, of the nuclear plants closing um, that are in the traditional markets that are rate of return, et cetera. Yeah, it's really so, funny. It's really funny. Like like Matt Brunig, sort of a, a left think tank guy, he runs the People's Policy Institute, always loves saying the TVA does it all which is sort of his dodge for admitting that by all they do like 5% renewables <laughs> and all of their clean energy for the most part yeah, comes yeah. from nuclear and they're investing more in nuclear, you yeah. know? And then, and so, and so Indian point three and the closure of Indian point three is, is sort of, you know, part of that trend, a, a private sector, uh, 
by itself. That is to say, it's not affiliated with a distribution company because it's uh, restructured um, in a liberalized market, right? And it's going to continue to happen given that structure. These 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 uh, nuclear plants were not built in that uh, in that uh, in that environment. They were built. All of them were built in the context of uh, a rate of return environment where 50, 60 year revenue flows, guaranteed revenue flows to be able to cover their their upfront investment. And so they're basically mm. in this new world. And, and that's one of the reasons they're struggling together with, you know, the way in which these wholesale markets work and uh, the various kind of market failures associated with five-minute markets, et cetera. And just to put sort of a finer point on some of the things you said so far, because you, I did a little bit of reading. I'm sure you did a lot, but you sent me some things. And one of the things that was clarifying for me is that we could say that there's a partisan element to this in that it was largely Republican state legislatures that instituted these re-regulations, this liberalization. Mm-hmm. But when we look at FERC's map of all of these RTOs, we notice that there are many red states that are still vertically integrated and that many blue states have ended up in these re-regulated areas. So it seems more like a rich state, poor state thing. Whereas if you're in flyover country, you're like, well, we don't have the sophistication. We don't have the whatever to sort of mess with the vertically integrated thing that we have right now, right? There's less of a need and there's also less of um, less pressure groups, like you said, uh, there and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and also your rates are lower, so there seems to be less pressure. And one of the reasons your rates are lower is because you're probably getting some... Uh, some of your power from some of these federal, you know, federal, um, you know, for these federal power authorities, um, uh, you know, whether it's the TVA or Bonneville or like it was back, you know, back in the day in Alaska with the Alaska Power Authority. Right. And right. you're you're getting, you know, you're more likely to get your power directly, like your distribution company or co-ops, which again are not for profit, right? So there's a series of series of kind of like interesting mechanisms that that there's just less less push. And also, I think you know, it gets to some of the points that you've discussed in the past, whereby kind of like you know, the more sophisticated, and what I mean by this in terms of just larger, more, you know, legislatures and public utility commissions that are kind of more linked in with, you know, these globalized ideas about liberalization and the benefits thereof, right? Like a California or New York, are going to be probably more familiar with what's happening in England uh, and in Australia and New Zealand than somebody, you know, in the center of the country. And so this idea of, uh, you know, this concept of sort of the spread of ideas and whether it's a neoliberal idea or something else is more likely to occur in these large public utility commissions or legislatures, you know, where you have a research staff to be able to kind of say, oh, look, this is the greatest and, you know, this is the greatest and latest new thing. We should try it out, right? And so there's institutional aspects as well. And also, we also got to think about is that the kind of class of person Mm -hmm. that is in from a professional perspective, right, is more likely to be attuned to those kinds of issues rather than to kind of like the stodgy way of you know, things have been done for 30, 40 years. I was about to say, these ideas have more ideological support from what Hayek called the secondhand dealers of ideas in the press and stuff like that, who legitimate these things. They're there to do that work. It's not surprising that some of the most apocalyptic visions of climate change and the most fervent drives for renewables build out come from a class of people that are living a life so unimaginably cosseted compared to the rest of human history. Right. You know, like yeah, 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 <laughs> they're yeah. about as distant as you can get from anything that is coming down river <laughs> towards us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And so look, I mean, I know that's a, that's a lot of, you know, history and overview of it, but, but, you know, I find it fascinating and I, and I find that, you know, um, 
you know, apropos your your excellent piece that you wrote on Indian Point, you know, it provides the kind of filler in terms of, you know, if you looked at it, you know, that closure from a a kind of political and cultural perspective, mm-hmm. um, you know, there's a bit of kind of policy and regulatory background to which that I found that, you know, kind of very much jives into, you know, some of the some of the themes that you took up in that piece. Yeah, yeah, I definitely saw some some resonance there, uh, which was, you know, it's, it's nice to know that you're not talking completely out your ass when you write an op-ed. So I wanted to just like end on this question because it was bugging me the whole time I was listening to you. And before this, when we were talking about it, and then while I was doing some reading and sort of, it was, you know, it's one of those things where I know something's really on my mind when it's what I'm thinking about when I shower or when I lift weights, you know, (laughs) like that's when something's really gotten in my head. And is there an off-ramp for these ISO states? Like, they seem to have really locked in path dependency. And I don't, mm-hmm. as much as this show is about how nothing feels possible, right? I, we also sort of talk about the wiles of what Machiavelli would call fortuna, you know? <laughs> like, uh, things just sort of happen and surprise you, you know? Mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if you're seeing anything that looks like it might change, maybe not even for the better, uh, right. but just change it all. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it's, um, yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I don't live in the United States, so I'm not, I don't have sort of the pulse of it as, as well as you would Emmett. Um, but, you know, and so in terms of like, what is, what is the political economy possibility at, at different areas? You know, I, I, you know, I am, I am uh, one of the reasons that I, I, you know, I, I wanted to talk to you is about that. There is, you know, amongst progressives, there is a recognition, uh, a historical recognition, of the benefits of regulation and the benefits of, of a a centralized institution that has your back, basically. And, and that's puts what, a floor in on society, right? And that's a collective action. So when you look at the state, the charters of the New York Public Service Commission or the CPUC in California, et cetera, you know their number one mission is is the public interest, mm-hmm. however defined. And so you may disagree with the way in which they define it, implement their public interest, but you know in my own regulatory work, what we're looking for is the public interest. You know, one of the cultural challenges, I think, to that is, I mean, there's a political, ideological challenge with neoliberalism that the this regulated monopoly did not work. That's the ideological quantitative challenge. And so I can say, by the way, it actually worked pretty well and it worked better than restructuring. Yeah. But, you know, that's that is what's happening at the at the at the academic level where I can show you one paper, right? right. I can show you two and three and four, <laughs> yeah. right? And, and so that's fine. And eventually those, that will filter out into the national, into the regular, but, but, you know, I, I'm also concerned. So I think, I don't think the ideological challenge is there anymore. And so there is a window for, you know, a, a sort of retooled mm. regulatory process. And so I think, you know, and, and this is coming from, from some of the sort of key decision makers, you know, the economists and the power analysts who were huge proponents in the 80s and 90s of this process, who are now saying, oops, right? When they're seeing the evidence, yeah. Right? You see the evidence, and this is what science is about in the social sciences. You see the evidence, you go, oh, you know, I don't know. You know, we may not get the benefit. It, we, we, it may not be worth doing it uh, to revert, but at least we know that there are problems and it didn't deliver on perhaps the unrealistic expectations that it did. Right. But I think, I think one of the problems outside of academia is some of the things that you talk about in your article, which is a cultural issue, which is a distrust, mm-hmm. like a, from a libertarian perspective, a left libertarian perspective, a distrust of the very idea of an institution that has the public interest, yeah. right? And that's sort of what regulatory, the idea of regulation 
of the social control of monopoly and economic power, I think is, you know, and we see it in, you know, in, in all economies about, you know, what's happening with Facebook and Amazon and stuff like that. Look, it took, how long did it take the mm-hmm. Department of Justice to go after Facebook or Amazon when, you know, I assure you that Roosevelt in the New Deal would have gone and did go after the equivalents of these rubber barons, mm-hmm. you know, legislatively and broke them up, right? That was right. a different era, right? And right. so I, I just don't, so from a cultural perspective, it's hard for me to say, but, you know, there's, I don't think there's a, there's a cultural predisposition amongst the people who are making decisions to use these regulatory tools because A, they're unfamiliar with them and B, they're distrustful of centralized mechanisms via which you can exert some form of social control in ultimately a private sector economy. You know, there's one thing I wish I had said in my American conservative piece is that a lot of what is motivates this is the cultural stuff I talked about, but it's also, this is all a type of like anti-politics. Right. Right. So it's either no one's going to be in charge of this, which usually means uh, some elite is going to be in charge of this for me. Or there is the wanting to return to a state of nature where there is no conflict. And I think that that motivates a lot of the renewables environmentalism that does this. And just to close out, I sort of like to take this all and end it not necessarily on a hopeful note, but on one that feels more like the opening of a door than the shutting of one. And I'll take recourse to Cicero for that. I'm sure I've brought this up on the podcast in his Republic, which is written as a dialogue like Plato's Republic. Um, I mean, it's a great piece of Roman propaganda because a lot of it is just like, why is Rome so great? And one of the reasons that Rome is so great that the main interlocutor says is that it has seen oligarchy. It has seen democracy. It has seen tyranny. It has recognized in moments of crisis, both the need for and the, drawbacks of each of these and it has found a way to integrate it so that it can move forward now i would say that if we believe in path dependency that can also turn into a type of fatalism just like i would like to say uh playing pretend isn't the same thing as optimism uh you can't just tell yourself that it's going to be all right and that it's going to be better at the same time if you believe that society will continue after you. And you believe that in your innermost self and you want that to happen, a prerequisite for that is the type of institutional learning curve that Cicero was talking about. And that's where I hope we are with this after hearing you discuss how people are talking about it. I hope that the Texas legislature can win its fights against the oligarchs to stabilize its grid. I think that that would be a big step forward for this type of issue. Hopefully people will learn for whatever is going to happen in California this summer or next, because we're going to have to, if we want to keep handing down everything that we've inherited to the generations who come after this, after us. And I'd say a fair amount of what we've done um, as industrialized societies has been incredibly good for human flourishing. And I would certainly love to keep passing it down so that we can see more human uniqueness and greatness coming down the pike. So folks, that's where we'll leave it. Edgardo, thank you so much for coming on. This was very informative. I loved it and I hope our listeners did too. Thank you very much, Emmett. Happy to be here um, and look forward to more of your writing. Thank you, thank you. Stay safe out there, guys. See you next week. Spectrum Stereophonic Holiday Tour of the City. Why not set your speakers for perfect balance? We'll offer a test tone played at the same frequency on both channels. This tone will be heard for 10 seconds. This is not a scientific thousand cycle tone. It is offered only to assist you in achieving a tonal and volume balance. When it's a day in town, got some champagne for a party out sprout. I work my theories through. Already had to adopt the one of those guys.